Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures in government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. As the new Republican majority in the House unfurls its spite and hypocrisy agenda, we are borne back ceaselessly into the past. Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced a slate of committee assignments empowering the nuttiest nutwings in the country and followed that up by stripping Democrat members Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell of their Intelligence Committee assignments, proffering threadbare reasons for what everybody understood was naked payback for their work on Trump impeachments. More ominously, the new majority has trained its sights on a possible debt limit showdown that would have catastrophic consequences for the country. Classified documents turned up at the residence of former Vice President Mike Pence, who was quick to join Biden in saying he had been totally unaware of them. To many, the Pence revelations confirmed the sharp divide between an apparently common, if worrisome, practice of documents leaving the White House and unique criminal behavior on the part of Donald Trump for knowingly taking hundreds of documents and repeatedly obstructing government efforts to retrieve them. That did not stop the Republicans, however, from continuing to equate Biden's and Trump's actions while claiming Pence's conduct was benign. The Pence revelations now put Attorney General Merrick Garland in a tight spot. Having appointed a special counsel to launch a criminal investigation of Biden, is he forced to do the same with Pence, even though both men seem to have done nothing to warrant it? A New York Times tour de force dissected the four-year-long, relentless, but failed operation by John Durham to find wrongdoing in the DOJ investigation of Donald Trump. It included gobsmacking details, at least to this DOJ alum, of overreaching and improper conduct. And yet, the very same discredited allegations may soon be recycled in investigations by the new House Select Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. To understand the political and policy stakes of these backward-looking Washington dust-ups, I'm pleased to welcome a superb panel of expert commentators. And they are... David Frum a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of 10, count them, 10 books, most recently, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. He's been active in Republican politics since the 80s, and he served in government as speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. He also chaired the prominent center-right think tank Policy Exchange, from 2014 to 2017. Most importantly, he's a regular guest on Talking Feds. Thanks so much for returning, David. Thank you. Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician and leading health policy researcher. She currently serves as a health policy director at Stanford University. Before, she worked in the Obama administration as director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement. And she's a contributor to NBC News and MSNBC and co-host of the podcast Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. And it's her first visit to Talking Feds, so I've been with her on her podcast, and it's always a delight to be with you one way or another. Thanks so much for joining, Kavita. 
Thank you. And I buried in my bio, I'm a former committee staff director, which might come into play for some of our discussion. Today. Do you think so? It might possibly <laughs> that he'll experience. And Michael Schmidt, a Washington correspondent for the New York Times, covering national security and federal investigations. In 2018, Michael was a part of two teams that won Pulitzer Prizes. His best-selling book, Donald Trump versus the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President, which we covered on Talking Books, is just come out in paperback, and it's got a new 12,000-word biography of John Kelly, the chief of staff who tried hardest to rein in Donald Trump. Michael, thanks so much, as always, for being here and want to tell us a little bit about the conversations with Kelly that are in the new paperback version. Thanks for having me. I wrote this book two years ago, and I realized that Kelly's story was a really important story that hadn't been told. So I went back and wrote this mini biography of Kelly, this 12,000 word thing that tells the story of his experience with Trump and his efforts to contain an unbound president and what that's like. And a lot of it sort of centers around Kelly trying to contain Trump on North Korea. And I found it pretty fascinating. Yeah, I got to say, we've heard some more. These are one of the details that have come out since his departure from the presidency. And Kelly does seem like a classic figure doing his best to somehow hem him in. All right. But flash forward to January 2023. Kevin McCarthy and the narrow Republican majority in the House wasted no time in showing its colors. Earlier this week, uh, McCarthy stripped Representatives Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff of their seats on the House Intelligence Committee. Let's just start here. Why Schiff? Obviously, it's payback. It's vindictive. It's nasty stuff. Why Schiff and Swalwell in particular? I guess I'll start. I think that Schiff and Swalwell for the Republicans are the face of the Russia investigation. Certainly, Schiff was extremely prominent in the first impeachment of Trump, Schiff and Swalwell became sort of at the the tip of the spear for the Democrats on trying to make the case to the public that Trump was compromised by his ties to Russia. So these two people sort of symbolized to the Republicans everything that they hated about congressional oversight during Donald Trump's presidency. And they've had their eyes on these two for a long time. And finally, they had the power to do something. Do we think this is a specific promise McCarthy made in his efforts to get the speakership specifically? I'll give you Schiff and Swalwell's, you know, skulls on a platter. I don't have a great sense of all of the things that McCarthy committed to. To me, this doesn't seem to be the heaviest lift for them. I mean, there seems to be a big constituency in the Republican Party for a move like this. And several members of his party, he would argue lost positions on their committees when the Democrats were in control. I don't think this is that big a deal for him to do. So in that sense, I don't think it it could be at the heart of what he had to give up to get to where he is. Probably more likely the kind of compliment. We saw that with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was kind of an ally to his, and she got back precious committee assignments that were stripped and Less of like taking them off as the uh, bargaining chip and more of which ones will people get is probably more likely just because of the way kind of the packages and the rules changes get put together. 
and just knowing members of Congress, much more likely to act in their own individual self-interest than some statement about others. But it wasn't surprising, but it still stung when it happened. I guess that's how I read it. And, uh, you know, Michael pointed out payback, although this is the party of false equivalencies because the arguments for stripping both Green and Gosar of committee assignments were pretty strong and remain that way. Schiff and Swalwa, these are really tissues-thin excuses. He can do that on his own unilaterally for intelligence. There's certainly a talk about trying to strip Ilhan Omar, but that's going to be a bigger hurdle because it'll involve a full House vote. Are they going to make the effort and can they pull it off? Anybody? I think they will. I mean, I think they will make the effort. May I take a step back to talk about something that has, I, I've been thinking about in connection with the new Republican majority in the House? So uh, this, Republic, this is the first Republican majority since the events of January 6th, since the attempt by a mob incited by the serving president to overthrow an election and thus the Constitution. And I said, what, 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 have we ever seen anything like this before? And the closest equivalent I can come, and it's, it's more extreme, but it's the same idea, is the election of 1874, when mm-hmm. Democrats recaptured the majority in the House of Representatives for the first time since they walked out in 1860 and 61. And the House of Representatives had a Republican majority through the Civil War and through the early part of Reconstruction. The Republicans had a disastrous election in 1874, and the Democrats take over the House. They don't take the Senate. And now the Democrats have a problem, which is they are a union of people who had been union loyal, but questioned the policies of the Lincoln administration, and people who had been union disloyal. And what do you do? Well, the Democrats elected as head of their Congress, someone who'd been union disloyal, Lucius K. Lamar, but they took care on every committee to make sure that their committee chairs were Northerners who had been union loyal, in some cases, veterans of the Union Army. They allowed no ex-Confederates and no, I think there was one copperhead a copperhead being a northerner who had opened to an easy peace with the South. I think there's one copperhead committee chair. Otherwise, it's all union loyal, all northern, and in some cases, veterans. They were very cautious about the face they presented to the public. So look, our coalition includes disunionists and rebels, but our coalition is not led by them. And by the way, it's a midterm election. Yes, I think uh, Grant is still president. He's a carryover from Lincoln in many ways. But yeah, go ahead. So it is, it is a sobering thing to me that Kevin McCarthy could not have the same composure, say, you know what, look, we do have these January 6th people, and they are part of the majority, and the people sent them here, so there's nothing I can do about that, but I'm going to try my best to make sure that they are not the face of my party. Instead, they are the face of the party, and he is allowing that same irresponsible, dangerous group to push him into yet another confrontation against the United States which is the public debt. You know, it says in the 14th Amendment, the public debt shall not be questioned. And we're about to see the public debt be questioned, pushed by the same people. So it's not just that he's a a weak speaker. There have been those before, but he's a speaker who is simultaneously weak in his position with his party, but actually extremely and dangerously strong in his commitment to his own position and his own survival. The driving uh, question of this Congress, I mean, the answer to every question is, What shameful thing will Kevin McCarthy do to keep this job just long enough to qualify himself for a lucrative career on K Street? And by the way, I don't know enough about 1874, but of course, the worst of the worst have been elevated to plum positions. It was, you know, Christmas in January for the Marjorie Taylor Greens, etc. But we're talking about a caucus that has almost 140 
election deniers in it. So it's both that he's elevated the most sort of crazy and histrionic, but also that the whole crowd is more or less committed to crazy positions. David inspired me, 1874, I can't help but build on to the history lesson. This might be the first time, and I think it was 1876 or so, that they'll move forward with possibly impeaching a cabinet member. Late in the 19th century, they actually were able to impeach a cabinet member, and I don't think they've ever done it again. That cabinet member who was impeached by the Congress of 1874 was really, really guilty. Um, He had been up to his eyeballs. That's right. Exactly. That was the (laughs) point I was going to make. And then even he, I think, was acquitted or pardoned or whatever the equivalent was back then. But they're going to move forward potentially to actually, you know, focus on this asylum issue at the border. And impeach Mayorkas, in other other words. And maybe Garland. Yeah. Right. And maybe Garland. And then the other thing that I kind of thought about is you probably noticed Buchanan basically, you know, telling Kevin McCarthy, like, you whipped me to get the votes to have, like someone else leapfrog Buchanan, of course, from Florida and talking about how it was given to McCarthy ally Jason Smith. So he got the spot um, on the more senior chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, very powerful committee, which is also unusual just to kind of build in what David was saying, that this is a man who would literally not just make a deal with the devil, but this is someone who has nothing that he stands for. And I'm glad you said that about K Street, because it's reminded me of This is exactly his audition for, I don't even know if it's K Street. Maybe it's to actually become the CEO of Twitter. I'm not (laughs) sure which one is more lucrative at this point or could be lucrative in loans. But anyway, it's just a very, the 1874 comment reminded me of that. We've got an an unfortunate number of parallels. I mean, the reconstruction parallels are very strong. But let me ask, this isn't where I was thinking of going, but is there anything we've said in the last 10 or 15 minutes that more than 2% of the country is even aware of? Is this just all inside gossip to them? We know that, whatever, 30, 40% are are with Trump. Does the rest of the country have some sense of the concrete danger in the particular moves we've been discussing? Or basically you can do it with impunity because nobody is even really aware of it? The country does not pay much attention to process issues. Well, this is a little more than process, but yeah. But what it does pay attention to are all the things that you don't do when you're consumed with impeaching Mayorkas. So one of the things I think that probably tens of millions of Americans are aware is the last Congress lowered the cost of insulin for people on Medicare. So everyone in this country who needs insulin and is not on Medicare is aware, I didn't get that benefit. Will I ever get it? That would be nice. Maybe I'd like it. And your model of how politics works is, you know, politicians get elected by giving people things. Okay, well, they're not going to do anything about that. They're not going to do anything about healthcare. The economic situation does seem to be passing through the valley of the shadow. We look like we're not going to have the recession that was feared. But there are still things that Republican voters and marginal voters would probably like Congress to do, and it's not going to do them. So I keep thinking that the cost of them is not that you know, that, I mean, yeah, they're going to make a lot of hullabaloo and people pay close attention to politics, may or may not get upset. Much of the country won't. But meanwhile, they're going to be violating this rule of politics. My boss in the Bush White House, the communications director, Karen Hughes, used to tell the story about walking on a beach and some holiday. And she sees one of those little advertising planes pulling a flyer behind it. And the flyer says something like, Jill, come back. I'm miserable without you, Jack. And she thinks, bad message, Jack. Too much about you, not enough about her. <laughs> that's good. I like that. And that—that's the problem. They're going to talk yeah. about Hunter. But they're going to talk about all the greatest 
Fox News hits that are going to be incomprehensible to anyone who doesn't spend four hours a day watching Fox News, never mind attractive. And completely outdated too, yeah. Meanwhile, everyone in the country who is not on Medicare, who takes insulin, is thinking, what about me? All right, let's zero in on the one thing that people will be focused on, and you mentioned it already, and that is the deadly serious issue of the debt ceiling. So it strikes me it's kind of Republicans at their worst combining a kind of destructive zeal to bring down the government and the absence of any real ideas for governing. So we have a potential stalemate. Now, they've, they're insisting that any kind of rise in the debt ceiling has to be combined with spending cuts. But I don't think you'll get those proposals from Democrats. Do Republicans have any coherent set of proposals to reduce spending? And if not, what kind of weird you know, deadlock are we headed for? Well, if you look at what Republicans have put forward already, I mean, it's just this insane. Biden said it in basically so many words. He's like, they're doing everything possible to put forward the worst economic policy you've ever seen and try to take back what marginal progress we've made in tax policies, et cetera, all of it getting reversed, which absolutely will hit Americans. The chances of that happening, and then, of course, the Senate are very low, but I'm more struck by how much they're talking about all the cuts. And obviously the Republicans aren't going to talk about raising any revenues, but it's certainly not lost on me as a Democrat that this is where I'm a little disappointed in Hakeem Jeffries, that I have only been hearing like a defensive posture out of him. And that's right. And that's the way it should be in the beginning. But we need to hear a little bit more. And all we've got so far, Janet Yellen, who's kind of signaling these warning calls and Joe Biden, I feel like we're like, that's fine. We're past this. Like we've all agreed something has to happen on the debt ceiling. And other than the Republicans with kind of this insanity on taxes, I haven't heard anything from the Democrats yet. I had actually thought, let me just quickly augment that question, that there's genuine debate within the, the Dems as to whether or not they engage. So that might be part of Jeff. It is part of it. And the Finance Committee and the Senate. I mean, look at the dynamics of who you've got on these committees. Maybe they're better off letting the, the Republicans drive off the cliff. Right. Yeah, I don't mean this as a moral equivalence, but I do mean this as an operational equivalence. The Democrats have behaved, I think, recklessly and irresponsibly on this question. Mm-hmm. So in 2011 and 2013, Republicans twice tried this trick. And I would have thought, if I were a Democratic decision maker, I would say the next time there is a Democratic House, Senate, and President, the first thing we're going to do in the first five minutes is either abolish thing or raise it to $90 quadrillion. We are never going to allow them to put this weapon to use again. Now, it's their fault they're putting the weapons to use. But, you know, when that six-year-old shot that teacher, obviously the six-year-old is a very troubled child and did something pretty deplorable. But you also ask, who didn't lock up that pistol? Why wasn't it in a vault somewhere safe? Why wasn't that the first order of business? Or even the last, they could have done it in the lame duck, probably. They're done the lame duck. So there, there are coalition reasons. But I, I think there are people in the Biden White House who thought that the, this debt ceiling might be useful for them. It's a very dramatic moment. They count on the Republicans sooner or later to give in. It frames the debate for 2024. And there are people who incurred a risk that was preventable. Again, I don't want to equate the people who failed to prevent the risk with the people who are pushing us to this risk. But the fact is, they did have an opportunity to prevent it. They had two years to act. They had reason to know this was coming. It had been done twice before. Take your moment, prevent it from ever happening again. Look, it's true. There's this sort of raw political calculus that's almost 
morally equivalent to say like this is going to be good for us. But uh, Michael, I mean, do you see this actual Armageddon coming to pass? Will the whole you know Republican caucus stick with it? And you know, do you see a sort of dramatic? final battle or does it veer off before it gets to such crisis? I don't really think we know. And I think it'll tell us a lot about who this Republican caucus is in the House, because it does appear from sort of the outset here that it is different than ones that we have seen in the past. It's taken on people and and positions that are far advanced from the earlier versions of just the House Freedom Caucus. And this will give us some sense about how far they are truly willing to go and how much control McCarthy has over them or not. And I think that that this just will be a great time to see who they really are. And by how much control, you mean he might sensibly want to avert this all, but Marjorie Taylor Greene and his putative bosses will say, sorry, pal, pedal to the metal. Yeah, I don't know. But I guess This will give us the first real sense of who this caucus is, how far they're willing to go, what lengths they're willing to go to, and how responsive they will be to the public pressure that will likely come with people saying you need to resolve this right now. When you have Andy Biggs walking around saying, you know, we can't raise the debt ceiling, et cetera, et cetera, the Democrats have carelessly spent our taxpayer money, you know, et cetera. That really just burns me because you saw this like incredible skyrocketing jump in spending under Donald Trump. And um, by the way, a lot of that was because of what we had to do for the pandemic, which just to say, we probably didn't spend enough on what we needed to do for not state relief, but for individuals. But I will say that like when you ask the question of like, who's going to care about committee assignments, like outside of the beltway, nobody even understands who's in Congress. This is another place where I fear that to David's point about the Democrats almost using this in some way back when they had the majority for some political folly, this is what's coming back to bite us. Because then you have Andy Biggs out there saying, well, the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi did all this careless spending and people aren't going to understand or look for their actual facts or listen for the record. They're just going to kind of blindly like kind of nod along and say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, we should cut a bunch of spending. And it's it's only going to come back. This is why I'm so frustrated with Democrats. It's just going to come back to bite us. It still does. It will. See how many seats we have up in the Senate? We're probably about the presidential elect, and that'll hopefully give, depending on who runs, that'll give some power to the downstream ballot. But I'm looking at those seats, Harry. It's not pretty. And so, you know, if I'm a candidate up in 24, if I'm Amy Klobuchar, I'm any of these people, I'm, I'm like, yeah, we better freaking figure this out. Yeah, a rough election coming. So much of it turns on a distinction that's a little bit subtle, but I think the Democrats can get across, which is this isn't raising spending. This is making good on the debts we already have. And this is, you know, avoiding Welshing, not to mention all the catastrophes that ensue. And that'll be the kind of rhetorical battle anyway they'll try to have. We've discussed this in the last four minutes on on the implicit assumption, of course, there's going to be a solution. And when when Michael says, we'll learn what's going on, this is a little bit like we're firing a nuclear projectile into space, and we will see what happens when the projectile lands on the earth. And we we may or may not see, because it may obliterate us all. And I'm haunted by a conversation I had with a friend of mine, a passionate Republican supporter during, I forget now whether it was 2011 and 2013, one of those two debt ceiling crises. And he was all for it. 
and you know thought that there had to be a message. You know, we're on a walk. So you, you run a small business. You're a government contractor. You understand you're not going to get paid. We said, that's ridiculous. He said, I sell to the Defense Department. They're not going to pay me. I said, no, no, they'll pay some people, but it'll be quite random because when you drive the 50,000 car pileup into the wall, you know, some of the cars may miss the wall, others will hit it, but there's, there's no presiding intelligence that can really run this thing. And it honestly did not occur to this person that his invoices might number among the unpaid invoices. <laughs> and I think the task of educating and then coordinating this body and then dealing with the incentive where the right thing for so many Republican members of the House, the best outcome is that Congress somehow raised the debt ceiling, but they number among the band that voted against the race. And the conflict between the individual imperative and the collective one can only be resolved by firm leadership. And we've already seen we don't have that. We've got the weak and venal leadership. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which a well-known person from another field explains for us a important legal concept in the news. Today's concept is how do you copyright musical compositions and what rights does copywriting them afford you as the composer? And to explain it to us, we welcome Veer Das. Veer is an actor, comedian, and musician he began his career doing stand-up before moving on to Hindi cinema, where he starred in numerous films, including Bad Mash Company and Deli Belly. In 2017, Veer released his first Netflix comedy special, A Broad Understanding, which combines performances from both New York and New Delhi. He made his American television debut in 2019 with the series Whiskey Cavalier. So I give you Veer Das on copywriting musical compositions. The copyright of music is governed by federal law. The Copyright Act of 1976 protects original works of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression, including songs, sonatas, and any other musical works. Copyright protection begins automatically as soon as the song is written down or fixed in a tangible medium such as a digital file and belongs to the songwriter or to the composer who created the song. It lasts until 70 years after the songwriter's death. The statute gives the songwriter exclusive rights to copy, adapt, distribute copies to the public and perform the song publicly. The idea is to give composers and songwriters a financial incentive to create music by charging money to people who want to record, perform, or sell copies of their songs, composers can earn enough money to make creating music worthwhile. The songwriter can decide to keep the copyright or can assign it to a music publisher who will handle licensing the song and pay royalties to the songwriter. People use music in lots of different ways, and it would be difficult to track down the owner of the copyright in every song you wanted to use whenever you wanted to perform the song in public or record your own version of it. So. We have licensing mechanisms built in the law to make licensing easier. Songwriters and music publishers have created organizations that sell licenses to perform music publicly, like ASCAP and BMI, to large businesses like NBC, small businesses like nightclubs, and schools and individuals. Online services like YouTube have blanket licensing deals with most music publishers, which allow the services to stream videos containing copyright songs. But what about musicians who want to record cover versions of a copyrighted song? 
there is a statutory compulsory license that allows them to do that in return for paying the copyright owner a fixed royalty. That license, though, doesn't cover performing the cover version in public or making a video of the performance. The copyright statute also gives a different separate copyright to recordings of the song. Protection begins as soon as the recording is made and the copyright belongs to the performers or other creators of the recording. Performers often decide to sell their copyrights to a record label. Like the copyright in the song, a copyright in a recording will last until 70 years after the performer's deaths. Because it can be difficult to figure out on what day a specific creator died, Congress added a provision to the law that extends the copyright in every work to December 31st of the year in which it would otherwise have expired. Thus, every January 1st, there is the release of new works into the public domain. As occurred two weeks ago with the I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream and the movies Metropolis and the jazz singer. Finally, of course, it's okay for a spectator at a concert to take a video of the performers and share it with friends. Actually, no, that's a violation of the copyright law, though rarely enforced. For Talking Feds, I'm Veer Das. Thank you very much, Veer, for explaining that important and tricky concept. You can see Veer in his new Netflix special, Landing, which premiered worldwide on Netflix December 26th. Veer will be touring the U.S. starting in March. To purchase tickets, go to www.veerdas.in. That's www.veerdas.in for show and ticket information. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, Bordeaux and Napa face off, pitting the Bordeaux Reds against the California Cabs. From a numbers standpoint, the Bordeaux region is the clear winner, with more wineries and higher production of bottles, producing nearly six and a half times more wine than Napa, but more doesn't necessarily mean better. Bordeaux wines are a blend of five different grapes. The Bordeaux region is actually divided by an estuary and two rivers forming the left bank and the right bank. Left bank wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon based, featuring more tannins and bigger overall structure. Right bank wines are predominantly Merlot based, richer in fruit with a softer mouthfeel and less tannin and acidity. Now much like the left bank, Napa wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon and well-known for their rich, bold style. Many of these wines are also blends, but you can also find 100% varietal wines from Napa. So whether you're Team Bordeaux or Team Napa, your local Total Wine & More has a huge selection, so you can enjoy the best of both worlds, at a price that won't break the left or right bank. So find what you love, and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Mike Pence, former vice president and this might matter, future presidential candidate, thought, you know, he'd better search through his residence to see if, like Trump and Biden, he had classified documents. Lo and behold, he had about 12. Let me just start with this. What is the significance of Pence's being part of this now and of, of the discovery of stuff at his residence? in the whole like mess of special counsels and Trump and Biden and 
the political war of words over the different actors. I think one thing that I learned about when I was looking at the issue of criminality and Trump and the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation is that if the Justice Department were to ever bring a case against someone like Trump for the Mar-a-Lago documents, it wouldn't just be that the the Justice Department would have to feel that they could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and survive appeals and all that stuff that we usually hear about a case, but that some former prosecutors and, and, and legal minds think that the Justice Department would need to be able to explain it to the country, would need to be able to say to the country, look, we are doing something extraordinary. We know we're doing something extraordinary. And it is so important. That is why we're doing it. And that the public would be able to need to understand and appreciate that. And I think that every time there's another example of someone else who did this, and look, the facts between Pence and Biden and Trump are very, very different. But I think that to the average person, every time that something like this happens, making the argument to the American people just becomes more difficult. I think that it becomes more difficult for the Justice Department to bring charges against Trump because they would have to say to the public, look, we are taking this. And I think that a lot of people in the public would say, hold on, is this what Pence and Biden did? Look, it's not what Pence and Biden did, but I think that there's that public aspect to it that is just a hugely complicating factor that is just another reason why bringing charges against a former president that would be running for president again is just a really, really difficult thing that I think that, that not everyone appreciates. That's funny because I sort of saw it as the opposite. That is, there was this very, I thought, specious idea of the equivalency. But now Pence is a random guy. And by the way, they've asked now, have the archives for former vice presidents and presidents to check. There is no reason that the problem doesn't extend to senators, former senators, staffers, executive branch staffers, etc., and I thought what it drove home, you know, Pence is just a random person for these purposes, is that this happens a lot and it's completely kind of inadvertent. They just happen to show up at your house as night and day different from what's being alleged with Trump. And it puts the sort of path to Trump charges. It makes it more easy for the department. But look, maybe you're right. Do you think, though, that Pence is going to get similar treatment, possibly a special counsel because he's going to run for president or a criminal investigation? To me, what it shows is there shouldn't have been a criminal investigation of Biden. There shouldn't be one of Pence. And Trump, it's just like night and day. It demonstrates something that I've warned about for a long time through the Trump years, which is that one of the distortions that we get, because so many people who talk about these issues are lawyers by training or by, by career, is that we tend to overemphasize in the Trump world the things that are illegal to the uh, things that are wrong. And again and again, we've discovered that some of the things that are Trump actions that are technically illegal are not the wrongest things he's done. And many of the wrongest things he's done are not technically illegal. I mean, we will find out whether it's illegal for the president to call the secretary of state and say, I need you to move 10,000 votes. I'm suspecting we discovered that that conversation was not illegal. No one ever thought to write down a law against such an action because who would ever do such a terrible and goofy thing? And again and again in the Trump years, 
A lot of the things that he did were abuses of presidential power for selfish ends in ways that are politically and ethically and morally shocking, but are not technically illegal. And then they'd stumble over foreign agent registration things and classification laws that are, yeah, those are real laws, but these laws are meant to deal with, and the classification laws are meant to deal with people who are on the cusp between reasonably careless and grossly careless, with the idea of maybe also occasionally trapping the compromised foreign agent. But the idea that, um, of deal, dealing with a presidential scoff law, the system isn't written for that, and criminal law is not really the tool. And once again, we are confronting the criminal law is a pretty weak tool against a president who doesn't respect the constitutional system. I think Merrick Garland, look, in a way, he's a very predictable person. He has always kind of had, no matter what the politics around the DOJ, and certainly there are many, many people in his ear, he's always kind of said that, you know, he's going to do everything to distance kind of the department from the politics and trying to keep the Justice Department from being accused of basically everything that we've accused the Trump Justice Department, so political bias, et cetera. And he's probably in my mind, overcorrected with some of the kind of outsiders that he's brought in. But I think he's in between a rock and a hard place in some ways. He has to do something if he wants to keep that consistent theme. But, you know, I I think of this in terms, Harry, of all of what's also happening in parallel. We have, you know, John Durham, who's continuing to kind of handle the inquiry into Russia's interference in the presidential election and links to the Trump campaign. And then he's got David Weiss, also Trump, U.S. attorney from Delaware, thinking about Hunter Biden and then Robert Hur, right? And you could imagine him adding this to Hur's plate and saying, this is kind of in addition to what you're doing, or Democrats calling for something separate. He has always weathered the storms of all these kind of political fallout moments, and he's kind of kept his base. And I think that's what Garland has done, whether people like it or not within the DOJ and around it. That's likely what he'll do. And I, I hate to say this, the, what occurred to me when they when they found Pence's documents is exactly what you said. I was like, my God, how many documents, cabinet members, how many times I was in the White House before it kind of West Wing became a skiff. I mean, who knows, like what I had in a box, you know, someplace. So I think David's right. Like there's, you know, literally criminal obstruction in the Mar-a-Lago matter to Pence's lawyers basically like, yeah, he didn't know he had them. And there's, you feel like the two are very different on the surface. To Merrick Garland, they're not. And I think that's how he'll treat it. There's a British um, uh, show about politics I, I strongly recommend called The Thick of It. It has magnificent writing. And one of the central characters is, a, is based on Alistair Campbell, who is the political advisor to Tony Blair, this incredibly creatively foul-mouthed character. And at one point, the Alistair Campbell character says, and I think this applies to Merrick Garland, he says contemptuously of someone who works with him, it isn't that this person is inside the box. So they get inside the box. And then once in the box, they build another box inside that one. And they live in the second <laughs> box. And that, I think, is Mer- Merrick Garland's epitaph. He's the guy who's inside the box, inside the box. But it's not really his job. All these federal prosecutors, you know, they can't save you. And what we can also see is that they themselves are the problem. That's the whole point about this Durham Bar thing is you have, when you have people who do not respect the laws of the United States and the laws of gravity, who just like are completely deluded and have paranoia that there are opportunities for them to abuse power. And the answer to that is not ever more criminal law. The answer to that is go- is inescapably political. And yet it's being criminalized. And, you know, maybe this is my experience as a prosecutor, but it's not a casual thing to initiate a criminal investigation. I mean, you know, Pence and Biden have sort of asked for it. But imagine if it were instead, 
you know, Jill Biden or Ron Klain. And by the way, I do think more documents are going to write how many people are are scouring their, you know, sock drawers now. And if they find it, they sure better turn it over because if it comes out in a few years, it'll be indefensible. But I personally, and I'm a big admirer of Merrick Garland's from way back, but he's down the wrong path. You know, what Pence had did, what Biden did, is not a matter for the criminal law. And that's not a casual point. But Harry, you're you're the lawyer. Yeah. Based on... Prosecutor, yeah. Prosecutor. Based on the logic of appointing a special counsel for Biden, why is they're not a special counsel for pets. That's exactly right. And I think what it shows is you can cut that in either way. One is, well, I guess we in for a penny, in for a pound, in for a hundred pounds, or it can be, this was a mistaken path and her is now there, but he really ought to be under DOJ policy, moving very swiftly to exonerate or charge anyone who's been publicly identified. He ought to be moving swiftly. I think for a lot of reasons, he may not. So you're right. I mean, Michael, I agree with you, except to me, what it demonstrates is the problem of having done this for Biden and just in general of treating what obviously to me is a policy issue. This It's a porous system and it's dangerous when when documents get out something need to be done but it's just not a criminal law thing i'll just put it this way you're right that if it's a matter of straight sort of treatment of like cases alike we're looking at a special counsel and yet this is the time i think to you know draw the line the operating theory of the biden presidency and probably of joe biden personally is that he can defeat crazy ideas tossed in bad faith by demonstrations of good faith and I think he's going to find out that's not going Doesn't to work. work. In fact, they don't care. They don't care. And to the extent they care, they think you're a schmo. They think you're weak. Yeah. Any compassion or even display of caring is, is just inherent weakness. Not to get like too, you know, I'm a newspaper reporter. I'm not supposed to be philosophical, but it'll be very interesting to see in history how the asymmetry of this moment is ultimately resolved. You know, it's like you have real, completely different worlds. And I'm just fascinated to know how this eventually is going to resolve itself because it could go in so many different directions and it just seems so disconnected. And I, I don't see how how they could ever get connected. But the, the idea of Biden and the idea of Biden sort of approaching things in a way that the people that he's dealing with are not going to go along with or listen to. It's just a fascinating thing to watch play out. Kavita, you've been in the White House. How do you think they are uh, toward now, Garland? Is it like, okay, you're giving us cover so we don't have to worry? Or is it like, you goddamn Boy Scout? Pretty Can you get that. out of one of the boxes? <laughs> you know, the latter, you think? Yeah. Pretty. Oh, I know it's the latter. I think there's an incredible amount of frustration within DOJ. I think we've heard like kind of the burblings of it, but within White House, both legal counsel. And I think that people have always felt it's exactly like Merrick Garland's, you know, overly correcting. That's exactly how I've described it. Yeah. Like when you look at these outside counsel, one thing I wish we would take away as Democrats from any playbook, it, it doesn't need to be a Republican playbook. It's just the playbook you would use to win a Notre Dame football game. Do not like play to the weaknesses of your own team and the strengths of the other. That's all we do. Stand up and tell the truth, maybe. This is to Michael's original point, but I think if he appoints a special counsel, which I sorely hope he doesn't, 
But if he does, and that seems to be the consensus here, then I think you're right. It's all, oh, everybody's getting criminally investigated. And why did you go against Trump, et cetera? Maybe it does muddy the waters a lot. I can't go without saying that, like, maybe we need to be understanding, like, what becomes classified in the first place. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not saying that these classified materials aren't appropriately classified. But, man, I, I have a gut feeling that, like, there's some things in there and it's just exactly like kind of what the Mar-a-Lago saw some of those documents. I'm like, why is nobody talking about the fact that maybe we actually need to kind of look at the presidential records act and think about whether it's definitely part of the issue. Although (laughs) I'm just, I'm joking. I think that's the thing. American public doesn't understand. There's a different levels of security thresholds. And then, you know, what are we talking about here and which of these materials constitute and the kind of motives, I'm talking to a group of people who know much more about law than I do, but it does seem like, what is the systemic issue here? <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, no, and how do you tighten it up and why does it happen? Very good questions, and you can lay blame on Biden and Pence, but man, crossing over into criminal land, it really gives me as a former DOJ type the heebie-jeebies. But speaking of former DOJ types, and this has already come out, David, you mentioned it, and you've been tweeting about it all week. Blockbuster report from the New York Times about Barr and John Durham. <laughs> Where to start? I'll continue in my DOJ, you know, role in DOJ culture and say that some of the things in there were really stunning. And in particular, the resignation of number two person Nora Danahy, who was married to the then U.S. attorney close with Durham. She did it in an old school way and didn't talk. But that I found really unsettling. What did you guys take as the biggest revelations from the report? One of the most startling was the way that Barr and Durham were working together. The whole point to a special counsel is they're not supposed right. to do that. That Bob Hope, Bing Crosby gallivanting is stunning, right? What, what the hell? And that they were drawn together, I think, because they started with, when there's some allegation against Donald Trump, if you start with the theory that he probably did it, you may be wrong. But if you start with the theory, no way would he do it, then you're certainly going to be wrong. Because in the universe of things you you could imagine he did, he didn't do all of them, but he's done a lot of them. And so they started with this defective assumption that, well, gee, he must be innocent. And then as all their theories for why he's innocent collapse, and as they discover on their own even more evidence of things that are troubling. Some of it's not specified. This apparently explosive allegation that the Italian government forwarded, and maybe it's a true right. allegation, and maybe it's not. They, you know, right. these intelligence things don't pan out. Maybe they we don't know. Yeah. something that wasn't real. But they went to work to stifle the things that they didn't want to know, and to, in incredibly unethical ways, magnify the things they did want to know. And those things collapsed. So ultimately, no harm was done. But it was just a massive perversion of justice drawn into by people who both of them had fair, reasonable records up to that point, but the need to defend Donald Trump turned them into parodies or worse of of everything you don't want a law enforcement officer of the United States to be. Let me ask you this. So we've got Durham's report to come. It makes it a lot harder for him to issue some, you know, a report that presumably is tendentious in how it treats all the accusations that he couldn't actually make stick. I mean, the only motivation to do that story is to tell the story. You know, we're not playing three-dimensional chess. We're just trying to go and find out what happened behind closed doors and bring that to light and tell it and let the public figure out whatever they 
they want to figure out about it. And that's sort of it. I think that the story for me highlights an issue that I don't think gets enough appreciation, although it might be a little too inside baseball for the average sort of American to, to totally grasp. But there's sort of two buckets of behavior that that Justice Department actions or stuff related to the presidency and the Justice Department fall into. One is obstructive acts. Those are, you know, Donald Trump was accused of trying to throw sand in the gears of the investigation to block the investigations of him or his allies. And we certainly know those incidents very well from the Mueller investigation. But there's a whole different bucket of behavior, and that is proactive uses of the government's powers against individuals or to further political ends or means. And this is an example of that. This is the sacred powers of the federal government, where the federal government can do extraordinary things into individuals' lives. And it's those powers being used for reasons that on the face of them don't look like they're, you know, you can't just accept at face value that they're following the facts and the law in good faith. Now, at the end of the day, you know, I'm sure we'll learn more and more about this investigation. But that is why, you know, when Donald Trump was trying to get the Justice Department to investigate his enemies, I thought that that type of behavior was significant in a way that was different than trying to obstruct things. Not that obstruction is, is not an issue. They're just different types of things. And I just think it's even rare to see the proactive use of the government's power. Let's bring this back to where we started. We're almost out of time anyway. So, David, you tweeted it's now going to be Jim Jordan's job to run the cover-up for the failed Barr-Durham cover-up. Jocular and pithy as always, but, you know, this is now the set of accusations now kind of go to the new House Republicans who are going to be recycling them. Is that what we see, even, even to the extent they've been discredited? So, look, the story of the Trump years is you see a man backing out of a bank pointing a gun, bag of swag over his shoulder, mask on his face, stubble on his chin. And you think, that guy looks a lot like a bank robber to me. And I'm going to withhold judgment. There may be an innocent explanation, but he, it looks a lot like he just robbed that bank. But the problem is the, the bank robber's fans then say, aha, aha, this is the bank robber hoax. And what we need to do is investigate why you thought the guy with the bag of swag was a bank robber. And you think, okay, well, so they had their first investigation of why the people who saw the bag of swag thought so. And it turned out, well, because the bag said swag and it was full of <laughs> exactly. stolen money. That's why they thought he was a bank robber. Okay, okay. Well, now we need a second order investigation of the people who proved that the bank robber was the bank robber. And, and this whole, that the people who are weaponizing the government are the people who say we need to investigate how, why you guys are weaponizing the government when you call that poor man with the bag of swag a bank robber. Any final thoughts now about where this leads or what it sort of uh, revealed about DOJ, this whole Bar-Durham mess? The only thing it'll say to me is that, honestly, it's great. It just reaffirms that everything we thought that Barr knew or thought he knew about Trump and Russia turned out to be true exactly about the investigation itself. So I, yeah. I am completely like, it feels like, yeah, this is completely validating that they had to build, you know, Durham had to build his case on like some mid-level you know, Democrat in the Clinton campaign who overheard some gossip, you know, by a toilet. I mean, it's exactly what you would have expected. And to the extent Durham is the new poster child for everything Trump touches dies, this point that Mike made of, 
you know, he's going down to the AG's office three days a week and they're sipping scotch. And I mean, by the way, Barr is a pretty charming guy. I've worked with him and seen it. And, and also, he is the attorney general. And I think that just meant a lot for Durham, but it just turned his head somehow. Both he and Barr, the Trump administration, has not been kind to the public legacies of. All right, we leave that there, but you're right, there's more to come, including maybe they are far-fetched, and I don't think it's crazy in and of itself that Barr assigned it to Durham. That's sort of part of the problem with special counsels. They just get, you know, stumble onto something and they're told to pursue it. But what was exactly the Trump accusation of impro- financial impropriety that the Italians gave over and what happens with it, et cetera? All right, we are out of time, except for a a minute or two for our final feature of Talking Five. We take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question, whether we like it or not, Donald Trump is coming back to Facebook and Twitter. What will his first tweet be? Five words or fewer, contestants, please. I'm going to give the most immediate thing that came to mind. It is five words. I'm back, bitches. That's uh, exactly, (laughs) that is literally what came to my mind. Hopefully he'll use it. Yeah. (laughs) I had thought you had said that it was going to be what should his first tweet be. Yeah. And what should it be? What it should be is, I'm so sorry for everything. (laughs) (laughs) But what it will be is, I was right about everything. Yeah. Excellent. David stole mine. I was right about everything. It was just a, a good, easy answer. It's always bad to be after David Frum on these things. I don't know. I, I, I trying to get inside the mind of Donald Trump. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on, that's not fair. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Um, and I'm going with George Santos, stand-up guy. All right, we are out of time for this one. Thank you so much to Kavita, David, and Michael. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Bruce Schneier about the implications of the brave new world and very powerful AI tool, ChatGPT. Talking Feds is a completely independent production So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon for $5 a month is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. 
Thanks very much to Ver Das for explaining the copyright law for musical compositions and performances. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.